This is a presentation of LifePoint Church. Our mission is to make gospel-centered disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information, please visit sharethelife.org. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So during COVID, uh, my family and I, um, we did a lot of puzzles during the long COVID winters. I brought a puzzle. I haven't done this one. This is a new one. Brand new puzzle. I haven't put this one together yet, but we did a lot of puzzles. And... Um, not maybe just during the COVID winter. We, we, we actually do puzzles every winter a lot. We like puzzles. We love puzzles. Do you like puzzles? Anybody here like to put together a puzzle? Um, some of you hate it. That's okay. All right. This is me, a miserable series for you. Um, I got this puzzle here. I brought it here so you can look at it and know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a puzzle. So in this series, uh, our aim is to look with fresh eyes fresh eyes at the worldview that's established by Scripture. And uh, just, I mean, it, like, like, spoiler alert, in his image, we're made in his image. Like, that's, that's what Scripture says is an important part of our worldview. So uh, we're aiming to look with fresh eyes at the worldview that's established by Scripture. And puzzles, puzzles are a great way for us to think about worldviews. So I, I brought one today, a thousand pieces, got it on Amazon. You know, like worldviews, puzzles are made up of many unique pieces that fit together in a particular way, and together, all those pieces form the big picture. And, and here, you can't see this real well, I didn't put it up there, but the big picture is beautiful. <laughs> it's this moraine lake, and you know, that's how puzzles work, and really that's how, how worldviews work too. In our hurried world, when we slow down a little bit, I think if we're honest, we all end up with uh, a wrestling of some sort with some pretty big questions. The kind of questions that are at the heart of every worldview and the kind of questions that if we're honest, we really can't answer without seeing the big picture of our worldview. These are questions like, what does it really mean to be human? Where do we come from? And what has gone so wrong in our world? Is there any hope that things are ever going to get better? And how are things actually going to look when all of this comes to an end? These are worldview questions. And I'd be willing to bet that these questions are lodged somewhere deep in your soul. Maybe you've made peace with those questions, but maybe, maybe in quiet moments those questions come welling up. You know, ultimately, these questions can be traced back, I think, to a, a single question that we all long to see answered. 
And, and this is something that's lodged deep in our hearts. And the question is this. This is the big question for our series. What does it mean to flourish as human? We, we all exist as human, and, and we may not have that totally figured out, but deep down, we don't want to just know what it means to be a human. We want to know what it means to flourish as human. Uh, author and professor Gregory Kukul introduced me to thinking about worldviews like puzzles, and this is a great book. Um, that he wrote called The Story of Reality. This was used by one of our life groups this fall, one led by Tim Gates and Ross Ridgway. It's such a helpful book. I'd encourage you. If you, if you want to wrap your head a little bit more about just the, the idea of worldview and, and what Scripture says about our worldview, this is a great place to go. Uh, but he used this illustration of, of worldview as puzzle that I thought it was so helpful. I wanted to share it with you today. In his book, Kugel points out that a, world, a worldview problem that I think most of us have, regardless of our faith, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, I think a lot of us have this, this worldview problem, and that is that, that for most of our worldviews that are like a puzzle, it, it, it's like the puzzle is simply just a box full of pieces, you know? It's hard to see what the big picture is if you're looking at just a box full of pieces and, and, and you're not looking at the box. The, 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 the front of it. Most of our worldviews, I think if we're honest, even as Christians, like, they're kind of a mess. And it's like, sorry, puzzle people. You know, if, if we're honest, we may have the pieces, but like, like, they're not put together. And it's hard to see the big picture. If we're honest, I think our worldviews are more like a pile of puzzle pieces. We're constantly encountering ideas day by day, uh, which are all pieces of worldviews. That's, that, that's really, you know, every idea we encounter, it's, it's a unique piece that fits uniquely within the puzzle of a worldview. And right now, these days, some of our favorite ways of communicating ideas are really, truly in short snippets of pieces. You know, it's like, it's, it, it's, it's social media, it's posts, it's tweets, it's images and memes and texts. We communicate ideas in these little pieces and we collect all these pieces and sometimes it's hard to know how they all fit together. We simply scroll through this jumbled mess of a feed day by day in our lives, and I think if we're honest, most of us either have not ever taken the time to figure out, this is going to be a little bit, sorry, this is not a 20-minute sermon. <laughs> either we haven't taken the time to figure out how the pieces fit together, even just two pieces, or it's been a really long time since we put it together. And stuff happens in life, big things like COVID that upsets the way the whole world approaches things and we end up with a mess, even if at one point in our lives we had taken the time to understand what the big picture looked like. And if this is what our worldview looks like, then it's tough to know when we encounter, uh, you know, various ideas and, 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 and pieces. It's tough to know where the individual pieces go. It's tough to know what to do with this piece. If you're a parent and you've got kids in school, your kids are hearing things and coming home with worldview pieces you may not know what to do with. Gender identity. 
You may feel like your kids are coming home with a piece of the puzzle, but it maybe doesn't even fit with the, the puzzle you have from Scripture. But not just that, you know, perhaps over the past few years, you've, you've been handed a piece of the puzzle and, and it's called racism and you truly have never had to personally deal with this issue for a variety of reasons and now you're holding this piece because everybody's holding this piece these days and you don't know what to do with it. Maybe you've tried to do something with it and it didn't go well. Or maybe the piece you're holding is sexuality or political engagement or, or, or questions about climate change and like all of these, there's lots of stuff, lots of ideas that we're encountering and if we don't have a clear worldview, it's just gonna stay a mess and we'll never know how they go together. Questions about God. Now, our aim for this series is to understand how the big picture of a scriptural worldview can come together and how it answers our big question, which is what does it mean to flourish as human? And I think as Scripture's worldview unfolds, as we explore, and, and this, this series won't answer every question, we won't deal with every single piece, but as Scripture's worldview unfolds, we're gonna see a beautiful truth, and that is that we flourish best as we embrace his design, not mine, not yours, not that guy, but his design, God's design. That's the truth that we're going to see unfold. And so I want to invite you on this journey. Now, this series, like I said, it's not, we're not going to put, we're not going to finish the puzzle. Don't worry today if we're not finishing this puzzle. We're not going to complete the whole thing, but maybe, maybe in this series we can get the edge pieces put together. You puzzle people, you know what I'm talking about. You, you first got to get the edge pieces put together so that we can know what to do with the other pieces as they come in. How do we sort them out? Where can they fit within the context of the worldview? So if, if worldview is a puzzle, and if this series is like the edge pieces, today, this week, we're not just going after some of the edge pieces. We're going after the special edge pieces. We're going for the corners today. That's what we're looking at. And so, so today, our big question is this, what is God like? If, spoiler alert, we are somehow made in God's image, and if we thrive best as we embrace that image in his design, what is he like? We're, what is the image that we're made in? What is God like? And so we've got four corners today that we're gonna, we're gonna cover, and I wanna invite you to, to open your Bible. This is a good day to have your Bible open. Genesis chapter one, we're starting at the very beginning. Genesis 1-1, the very first verse. Elizabeth, you did a wonderful job of reading. Thank you. And, and we see the first corner piece. If we're trying to understand this idea, what is God like? The first corner piece comes into place. It's like when you open the box and like it's just sitting right on top. There it is. Four words, in the beginning, God. Stop, pause. This is the first piece. In the beginning, God. He did something. He was there in the beginning. Before anything else was there, God was there. The first corner piece, God is the center of the story. God is the center of the story. What is he like? He's the very center. This story, it's not primarily about you or me or the church or anything else we tend to make the story about. No, God is the center of the story. This picture, the big picture, it is God's big picture. It's not my big picture. You can't order this one on Amazon. <laughs> 
Yeah, actually, you can get a copy of this on Amazon, but, but you know what I mean. God is the center of the story. Our prosperity, our happiness, our health, even our enjoyment of life, those things are not the center of the story. It's not what the story is about. God is the center, and we will only truly flourish when we step away and recognize that that's where he is. He's the center of the story. We could use more churchy language and, and, and describe that process by saying we'll only truly flourish when we step back and glorify God. To, to glorify God simply means recognizing the truth that this story is his. It's about him. He is the center. What are some of the subtle ways that you and I tend to put ourselves in the middle of the story? You know, it's kind of interesting. If you've been around church for a long time, you've probably heard, heard this, this phrase, uh, that God loves you. That's true. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Also true. Totally true. In my fallenness, <laughs> I can receive those truths and start to think, yeah, God has a great plan for me. Why would he have a good plan for me? Maybe I'm what matters most. You know, there's subtle ways, I think, that we sometimes step into the center of the story, the place that, that only belongs to God. What are some of the subtle ways that you do that? Now, as we keep reading here in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, out for, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We see here in the first two verses of Genesis that the narrator, he makes a distinguishment. He distinguishes the creator from that which is created. In the beginning, God, this is his story, he did something. He created the heavens and the earth. And then th there's, there's two categories of stuff in this world. There's God, and then there's all the stuff that he made. So there's a difference between those things. He is very clear here, the author, to distinguish the difference between God, the creator, and that which is created. And that's our second piece. You see, God is holy. God is the uncreated creator. He's uniquely distinguished and set apart from everything else in creation because he is the source of everything else. Being set apart from everything else functionally is the very definition, one of the primary definitions of the, the, the Hebrew understanding of what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart in some unique way. And God's holiness expressed in his being uniquely uncreated by anything else in all of creation, it gives him a kind of authority over what he's created that nothing else in all creation can have. God is holy. He's set apart. But his holiness is not just evident here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. No, it's clear throughout Scripture. Uh, there's an, an author, Jen Wilkin, wrote a book called In His Image. It looks at some of the, the attributes of God. And, and, and in that book, she points out that just based purely on repetition alone, God's holiness, as you survey all of Scripture, is, is one of the most important attributes of him. There is no other attribute of God that's more often attached to his name when mentioned in Scripture than his holiness. 
In the Hebrew rabbinical teaching tradition, uh, twofold repetition was often used in order to call attention to something. And, and this was common. We see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was common because most of this teaching happened verbally orally because they didn't have an abundance of paper and printing presses and so things had to be shared in a way you could remember so like for instance when Jesus wanted to get everybody's attention and point to something really important he would use this twofold repetition how many times in Jesus ministry did he say truly truly I say to you you get their attention hey truly truly pay attention here repetition matters in scripture we should pay attention and scripture repeats over and over the holiness of God but what what does that holiness really mean we see it's, it's fascinating when scripture gives us a look into the very throne room of God we see this repetition raised up even to, to a third degree, a degree higher than this, this, double, uh, this, this double repetition. We see this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, and Isaiah 6, 3, uh, it, it points to the, the same scene. This is the throne room of God, and these are angels who are standing before God, and they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full full of his glory. It's repeated not twice, but three times. The one time we see an attribute of God raised to the third degree. Repetition matters. God's holiness is central to understanding what he's like and who he is. We can't miss the holiness of God. Jen Wilkin gives this useful definition of holiness that pulls from a few other places in her book. She says, she says, holiness can be defined as the sum of all moral excellency, the antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. It carries the ideas of being, as we've talked about here, set apart, sacred, separate, of possessing utter purity of character. Think about what it means for something to be pure. A precious metal is, 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 is known. Its value is known by how pure it is. Gold, how pure is it? Are there other metals mixed in? And we see this purity of character. It's embodied in God in his very name. Turn with me over to our, our second passage of scripture that was read today. Exodus chapter three. It is embodied in the very name of God. Now here, um, we see for the first time in scripture God actually gives his people his name. He tells them what his name is. Before this, he was only known as God Almighty, or, or for them, it was sort of like this idea of like, like, like he's God, but you, you know lots of gods. Ancient Mesopotamia, they had lots and lots of gods. It was like, he's the bestest God. <laughs> he's God Almighty. Here, God reveals for the first time his name, and listen to what the name is. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Now, Quick backstory in case you're unfamiliar. Moses is talking to the burning bush. He's speaking with God through the bush. God is calling him to go and knock on the door of the guy who's the most powerful man in the world, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and ask him to let, not ask, but command him to let God's people, the Israelites, go who are captured in slavery. And Moses is worried about Pharaoh, but he's also worried the Israelites will be like, who are you and why are you here? And we don't want to follow you. That sounds risky. And so Moses is having this conversation with God. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God 
answer is Moses. <laughs> he said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God reveals his name. And in the ancient Near East, a name was not a label, like Wes or Mike or Phil, you know, like, like the name was what, what was to, to, to know the essence of somebody. And Moses, he asked, when he asked God's name, he doesn't just use the, the, the typical like way that he'd ask somebody's name. If you dig around in there and push your glasses up in your nose and get in the Hebrew, it's like, like he's really truly saying, what are you like? That's our question. What is God like? And, and God says, I am who I am. And his name is this picture of holiness and purity and consistency of his character. You see, when he says, I am who I am or what I am, I will be, it's like God is saying, what I am, I am that all the time. You can count on me if you can count on anything. The stuff that I'm made of never changes. It's pure. God is holy. You know, in a world that's full of deceit and double-tongued gossip and betrayal and backstabbing and two-faced manipulation, <laughs> in a world full of shifting character, look how different this is. I am who I am. God is holy. He's set apart, he's different, he's unique, he has this purity of character. Now there's so much more we could say about his holiness, and so send me the emails and tell me what we missed. I know we missed a lot, but I'm gonna move on because God revealing his name, it does more than just reinforce his holiness and embody what he's like in his holiness. No, uh, by giving Moses a name to be known by, God actually reveals another primary attribute of his, another puzzle piece that's really, really important. And this is our third one today. God is personal. He is personal. He gave a name he wanted to be known by. Look at verse 15 with me. God emphasizes to Moses to be sure to tell the people his name, the Lord. He, he, he wants them to call him by this name. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. He's, he's referring back to what we read here, the Lord. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You see, God does not want the people of Israel to know him only as the God of their fathers. He wanted them to know him personally by his name. Forever he wanted to be known personally. How do you know God today? What you know of God? How do you know him? Is, is the God you know, is he the God of your father, or your mother, your, your forefathers? Is he the God of a generation that, that, that you've seen that came before you that maybe has really different ideas about a lot of stuff today and you know they're only on Facebook and, and not Instagram or whatever? I don't even know. Is, is the God that you know, is, is, is he known personally by you? 
Or is he the God of your forefathers? You see, God is personal and he wants to be known personally. He wants you to know him personally. That means that, that he is, is not a force. He's not an energy. He's not nature. He's not a vibe or consciousness. No, God is a person. Not a human, but a person with a name and distinguishing traits and even as you look through the rest of scripture, feelings and character and relationship. We're, we're not even talking about the Trinity today, but <laughs> it's so cool. You see God, he, he is personal and that's reflected in his relationship within himself and that's a whole different series and so we're not doing that today, sorry. But, but we're, not, we're not going there today. But God is personal. He wants to be known personally. And in verse 15, it's interesting here, God's name here in our English Bibles it doesn't sound real personal, does it? Look, the Lord. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord has sent you to me. That sounds more like a title, doesn't it? It's because it is. But it's not what the Hebrew says and it's not what God said. You probably have a footnote in your Bible. And, and we got to unpack that to understand what it means that God is personal. You see, the Hebrew doesn't say Lord Adonai would be the, the Hebrew word that means Lord. No, transliterated to English, this is pronounced Yahweh, not Lord, which is the same root word as I am, what came just before in, in, in verse 14. It's the same as I am, but it's in the third person. So when God says his name, he says I am. When we say God's name, we say he is. So we don't do that confusion thing of like stepping into God's role. I am, he is. In this verse, because God is personal and wants to be known personally, he instructs God's people, the Israelites, to know him and refer to him by his name, Yahweh. And here we find the tension between the reality that God is holy and the reality that God is personal. Because the Israelites, they didn't, they didn't want to say his name, did they? If you know their history, they were afraid to say his name, partially because one of the Ten Commandments is part of all this. We'll see that later. Um, was don't take the Lord's name in vain. And they didn't want to mess that up. They have such an awe for God's holiness that, that they, instead of calling him Yahweh, they would, they would call him Lord. They would use this title that, that was the, the same thing that they would call somebody who was like, say, a master of a slave or somebody. Or they would, they, would, they would say Jehovah or Yehovah, which is, is the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord, interspersed. And so they, would, they, they, they did some other kind of creative things because they were so afraid of God's holiness that they didn't want to embrace the fact that God is personal and say his name, even though, look, it's how he wants to be known. It's how he wants to be known. And I think, though, even this, though this is understandable, this tradition, it keeps us from knowing God as he wants to be known. It has the potential to do that. It has the potential to keep us from understanding this vital aspect to what God is like, that he is personal. And even if it's well-intentioned, I think we humans have a tendency 
we have this, this tendency to regard God as far off and impersonal. He's either up there or he's over there at that church or he's, he's, he's in our neighbor's house, but we, we tend to hold him at arm's length. And, you know, it's interesting. If we believe truly that God is not a personal God, that he, he is something, somebody that we should refer to with a title and he's up there, he's over in the, the church building, but he's not with me, he's not personal. If we believe that lie, it's so much easier if he's far away to step into the middle of the picture, isn't it? And so my fear is that this, this tradition that goes all the way back to the Israelite, it may keep us from knowing and understanding that God is personal. He wants to be personally known by you and by me. Now you may be thinking, why would I want to know God personally? You know, it, sure, he's, he's the center of the story, he's holy, and he's personal, but what is he really like? Is he, is he, is he the kind of guy that I would actually enjoy? <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a really good question. I'm glad you asked. And that brings us to our, our, our next and final corner piece for today, and that is that God is good. He is good. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. I know we didn't have this verse read. This, this passage here, Exodus 34, um, unpacks God's goodness. And we see here like a, a continuing story. Now we just fast forwarded in like 30 pages. We just skipped over Moses being faithful and doing what God asked him to do. And, and there are some bumps in the road and stuff and it's a great story, read it. Uh, and, but he, he has gone in and led God's people by God's power and grace and, and for God's glory out of Egypt. And they've defeated the number one military superpower army in the whole world and they didn't even fight. And it was amazing. It was this incredible thing. And then God finds himself with all these people and he's sort of like, now what? <laughs> And so he goes back to the mountain of God and he meets with God. And, and there's a lot more here that we're not covering, but God continues to unpack his name, what his name means. And so we see God's goodness here. And this puzzle piece of his goodness, it's, it's so closely connected to God being holy and personal because, because it, it, it builds off of these things. There's a pastor and author, his name is John Mark Comer, and he has a great book that unpacks this very passage we're looking at here, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, uh, just unpacks everything that he says here, and it's so helpful. This, this passage, it's, it's one of the few places in Scripture that we get God telling us about, like describing himself. And scholars believe that more than any other passage, this one here is quoted more times in the Bible, by the Bible. Like, so it's, it, it's throughout Scripture. You see this passage quoted and echoes of it. It's all over, Old Testament and New Testament. Let's look at this, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, two verses. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, he proclaimed his name, Yahweh, Yahweh a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, God is good. And you're like, what's the thing about the, the kids punishing the children, really? Like, <laughs> 
We'll get there, we'll get there here. But God here in this passage, he declares his name twice. Remember the repetition, twice. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, my name, repeats his name. And then he unpacks what it is in God that is good, what it is that is good all the time. Remember, Yahweh means I am, like I am who I am. All the time, I am like this. He impacts what it is that God is all the time in two primary elements. We see these two elements of his goodness unpacked here, and the first one is his steadfast love. We see this in verse 6. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, this is a word that I'm going to mispronounce, hesed. Uh, it, it's a key Hebrew Old Testament term, and it means a kind of love that is steadfast. It's faithful. It's a covenant love. It's not based on a whim or a feeling or a circumstance that will change. It is steadfast the steadfast love of the Lord. And verse six lists all these attributes of, of what this steadfast love looks like. It's full of mercifulness and graciousness. It's the reason God is slow to anger. His steadfast love. This is his goodness. His goodness is expressed through his steadfast love. Now, we also see his goodness expressed through his justice. Look at this in verse 7. This God full of steadfast love who will by no means clear the guilty. And then he goes on to talk about this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and the fourth generations. Now, without justice, we can't have a conversation about God being good because you've suffered too much injustice for a good God to just look the other way. This world has suffered too much injustice for a God who is powerful and good and holy to just ignore it. We can't talk about God's goodness unless he has justice. But you may be wondering, what's good about a God whose justice punishes the children for the parents' mistakes? That sounds like like, not a good thing, and maybe not even a just thing. That's a, that's a, that's a good question. And, and I want to tell you, you know, there's, there's a lot of layers of meaning to this, but, but we know that at face value, it looks, like, it looks like that. But in Deuteronomy 24, we see that the law of God, uh, God insists on holding people accountable for their own sins. And, and there's more and more layers to this that we're actually going to unpack. And so I want to invite you to come back two weeks. I promise we'll come back to this. This question about the kids and the generations and the sins of the fathers. We'll come back to it. But right now, today, don't miss the forest for the trees. There is something amazingly good about God's justice and his goodness that's expressed right here. So don't get caught up on that. We will address it, I promise. Come back in two weeks. Uh, but, but I want you to focus on verse seven with me for a minute here. Look at verse seven. He says here, that this God, he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then he talks about uh, this, this, this visiting iniquity to the third and the fourth generation. You see, Yahweh here is expressing himself, unpacking what he's like by using a familiar Hebrew idiom to, to make a comparison. 
And so I, I want you to see in verse seven here the contrast between his steadfast love, the chesed love of God, and his justice. Look at the contrast. He says he's, he's a God that keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations to thousands. That's this Hebrew idiom. It's like, it's like saying his, there's, there's a, a, no ceiling to his love and how faithful it is and how gracious and merciful he is. There's no ceiling to it. But look, there is a limit to the way he executes justice to the third and fourth generation. You know, if the two were put on a scale, the weight of Yahweh's steadfast mercy would far, far outweigh the weight of his judgment. Now his judgment is there, and this is not a preacher trying to get around a hard reality that, that our God is a just God, but look at the scale. Look at the way God wants us to know him how he wants us to understand the weight of his love and the weight of his judgment. This illustration is from John Mark Comer from his book, and it's so helpful. I, I had to recreate it for you to show it to you because it spells out in a way that allows us to, to really look at what God says about himself. Even the, the, the judgment of God that, that maybe you have heard that maybe gets a bad rap sometimes, it, it allows us to understand how God speaks of these things and see his goodness. See his goodness. You know, James describes this principle in the New Testament in chapter two of his epistle. Uh, this way, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It is a good God that has the kind of love that would go to the extreme that he's got to go to in order to make this happen. And that happens through the work of Jesus on the cross. Another spoiler alert. We'll get there in a few weeks. Do you see the goodness of God here? Do you see a kind of God that has this love that's expressed in, in, in mercy and in, in justice and judgment that, that, that he, he's got your back and he also has an incredible love for you. So in review, what is God like? God is the center of the story. God is holy. God is personal. And God is good. What does it mean to flourish as human? We will flourish best as we embrace his design, the design of the creator. Now, as you look at these, I want to give you a next step here today. As you look at what God is like, these four corner pieces, which one do you struggle to embrace the most? Which one do you struggle to embrace the most? Which trait of the designer of God do you struggle most embracing today? I want to invite you into a safe space with your family, with your friends, maybe your life group, to talk about that question. 
Which bit of God do you struggle embracing the most today? I want to invite you to prayerfully consider that. And I trust the work of God and His Holy Spirit in your life to help you grow in seeing the big picture as we take these questions to Him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are all of these things. You are so good. And you are holy and you are personal. And you, it is so freeing to embrace the idea that you are the center of the story. I pray, Lord, that you would make yourself known clearly to us. I pray that you would help us to see what you are like. I pray that the edges of our worldview, the corners, that they would come into view, that we would understand from your word just how good you are. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is a presentation of LifePoint Church. Our goal is to encourage and equip people to become fully developing followers of Christ. For more information, please visit sharethelife.org.